1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is often a text that we use for the Lord's Supper, of course. I think we'll start reading this morning in verse 17. Verse 17. So, um, those willing and able, would you stand with me please as we share together the reading of the Word of God. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you for the writing that we have just read, laid our eyes upon. We know, Heavenly Father, that it is under inspiration that Paul recounted all of this and and dealt with the issues that he had to deal with at the church at Corinth. Father, I pray that you would help us to realize that this is a time that we gather together to remember and to think about and to meditate upon the one the Lamb of God, predicted in Scripture to come and die on a cross and shed His blood. That blood was real blood that was shed. He died there in agreement in accordance to your perfect will. He said, not my will be done, but your will be done. And then by giving up that, He became a complete and perfect sacrifice for us. We, on the other hand, have never completely done your will. As a matter of fact, we often betray your will. Time and time again, we sin against a holy God. You have not changed. Your righteousness is still righteous. Your judgment is still required when the law is broken. None of that has changed about you, Heavenly Father. But there's been a change in us. A change is that which is worked by the Spirit of God and by the forgiveness of our sins through Jesus Christ and blood shed on the cross. We now belong to you. Regardless, we still sin. But the price has been paid. The price is always paid. And thereupon we fall upon our faces before you and praise you, O Holy God, that somehow, even though we sin against you, still... Jesus Christ's death on the cross is still adequate to pay for it all in full. Not one sin shall be recounted against us because of the precious and the wonderful and the full cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Amazing. Amazing grace. And amazing love. He would die for sinners such as us. 
but it's true. And our hearts rejoice in the reality of our relationship with a Heavenly Father that will never end. All praise and glory to you, O God, for what was accomplished for us through your precious plan of salvation in Jesus Christ. Our great Redeemer, in His name we pray. Amen. Thank you, and please be seated this morning. Some of you have, I'm sure, been to some memorials, uh, places where people have been killed. Now, that may simply be a graveyard. And maybe you go visit the grave of those who have gone on before you, maybe mom, dads, grandmothers, grandfathers, aunts, uncles, friends, graveyards, memorial places that you go. I personally am not one that goes very often to a graveyard. I don't know if that's good or bad. Maybe that'll change as I get older. I don't know. But I'm not one to particularly go to the graveyard. I remember my grandma and my granddad and others have gone on in my mind, in my heart. Perhaps one of the most well-known memorials is that of the unknown soldier. Now, we were, we've been there, right? Yeah, we've been there. Yeah, several times. Okay, good. My mind is already lapsing on me. I've already got one foot in the grave. We've been there. Any of you, any other, any of y'all been to the tomb of the unknown soldier? Y'all been there? Anybody else? Y'all been there? Never been there. You've probably at least seen the clips on the news. You know something about it if you've never been there. Something about it. You know it's guarded 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, regardless what the weather's like. I don't care if it's 10 below zero and the wind is blowing 50 miles an hour, they got a guard. And I don't care if it's 120 degrees and the humidity is 100%. They got a guard marching across the tomb of the unknown soldier. It was Memorial Day in 1921 when they exhumed the remains of four unknown servicemen who died in World War I. Flew those remains to the United States of America. A guy by the name of Sergeant Edward F. Younger chose one of those remains to be placed in the tomb of the unknown soldier. There are three other bodies in the tomb. One from World War II and one from the Korean War. Dwight D. Eisenhower in 1956 was the one who sent a bill through to select and pay tribute to the soldiers, unknown soldiers of World War II and the Korean War. In 1984, they brought back some remains of an unknown soldier from Vietnam. They also put his remains in the tomb of the unknown soldier. However, four years later, because of our success with the DNA, he was identified and so in 1988, they took his remains out of the tomb of the unknown soldier and gave them back to their beloved ones. The changing of the guard is probably one of the most solemn rituals that you will ever have an opportunity to witness. You have an opportunity to go see the tomb of the unknown soldier. You want to stay and watch the changing of the guards. Now, from uh, 
October to March, the changing of the guards occurs one time each hour. In March, it occurs every half hour for the visitors to come and to watch. The freedoms and liberties that the tomb of the unknown soldier represents, the blood that was shed by these men, is a hallmark of the United States of America. We've always been a country that has prided ourselves on freedom and liberty. That freedom and liberty that we pride ourselves on, though, did not come freely. It came at the price of the blood of thousands of men and women who were willing, voluntarily willing, to go and fight and to die that we might have the freedoms that are being taken away from us today, obviously. We live in a country where we're changing, unfortunately. And when men refuse to stand for the flag of the United States of America, they are like spitting on the face of the men and women who went to foreign lands and laid down and gave everything they could to preserve what we have today. We still, beloved, need to fight. (laughs) We still, beloved, need to fight. Even though we're on domestic soil, domestic soil, for the freedoms that were bought for us. Represented by the tomb of the unknown soldier. One of the most sobering parts of the ritual of the changing of the guards is when the soldier comes forward and calls for all to be absolutely and totally silent. It's amazing. You walk up and you see the tomb and there are many visitors milling around and talking and discussing. But as soon as the sergeant comes forward and tells everybody to remain quiet, you can literally hear a pin drop. And all you can hear are the birds and maybe a little bit of the traffic. But it is a pronounced degree of silence. Not a word is to be spoken. The silence that they require is indicative of the cost of life. You know, when a person dies, if you've ever been in the presence of death, you've ever been in the presence of death, you know the words escape you. When a person dies, it's a holy, holy moment. There are no words that you can utter that make any sense when a person dies. And that is because of the sacredness of life. No other creature on the face of the earth dies with the kind of sacredness that a human being dies with. Eternity is marked when a human being dies. Eternity is marked. And you cannot put into words the crossing of a soul into eternity. And that's what makes the moment... Holy. And that's what makes the moment holy. But you see, when a person dies, that's when you drink from the cup of death, purpose and direction. When a person dies, you reevaluate your own life. And God intended for it to be like that. When the ceremony begins and the relief commander announces the changing of the guard on the plaza, the tomb guard marches 21 steps behind the tomb and faces east for 21 seconds. And when the 21 seconds is up, he turns and he faces the north 
for 21 seconds. And then he marches down the mat and repeats the process again. All in 21 second intervals. And at the last term is executed, he does a sharp shoulder of the arms. And what that simply means is he takes his rifle and he places it on the shoulder that is closest to the visitors. And the reason he places it on the shoulder closest to the visitors is to mark that he is ready to defend anybody that might come and interfere with the process of the changing of the guards and to protect the tomb. Doing everything in increments of 21 seconds is symbolic of the 21-gun salute. Now, the 21-gun salute is the highest military honor that can be paid to any soldier. The point of the tomb and the changing of the guards is to signify that an ultimate sacrifice has taken place. It is to mark that sacrifice with dignity. It is to mark that sacrifice with solemnity. And it is to mark that sacrifice with respect. The reality is that even though death is natural, and it is, even though death is part of life, and it is, death is still a mystery. Like it or not, most people, normal people, have within their hearts a fear of death. A fear of death. The unknown. Have you ever noticed today that, and I didn't notice so, so much so when I was growing up, but today there seems to be an increased desire to mark the place of someone where someone has died. It's not unusual for you to drive along the roads here and, and, and on the side of the road somewhere you see some balloons or you see some articles of clothing or you see a cap you see a cross, you see some flowers, or maybe even a picture. And it seems like that people are interested in making a sanctuary out of the place where someone actually died. To mark that place where someone died. Why do they do that? Why do they do that? Because the place where someone died to them, to the living, is holy ground. It's holy ground. And so they put a remembrance there. They put a remembrance there. Holy ground. The death has taken place. However, there is one death Above all deaths, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Heads and, heads and shoulders above all other deaths. You know, today, I, and I know you've heard me say this before, and I, and I struggle with it. And maybe I should struggle with it, but I struggle with it. And, 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 I, you know, and maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm riding a hobby horse. <laughs> I'm tempted to do that at times. But maybe I'm riding the horse. I am concerned, deeply concerned about this idea that somehow or another, and I do not mean to be offensive to anybody who is in this room at all. And I understand that we all have different opinions and different ideas about death and what we're going to do when someone dies. And in no way do I mean to denigrate your opinion or your desires or, your, or your, uh, your, the way you want to go today. I don't, I don't want to do that at all. But I am concerned today that what we want to do 
is when someone dies, we simply want to somehow or another celebrate their life. And so, oh, I find a lot of people today saying, yeah, what I want when I die is I want to have basically a party. I basically don't want anybody to grieve. I don't want anybody to sorrow. I don't want anybody to be sad. But I want everybody to get together and I want them to have a good time. I want us to play some games. I want us to sing some songs. And I want us to have basically a good time. And you say, preacher, what's wrong with that? Don't you want to celebrate life? Isn't that a good thing to do? Beloved, we're masking the elephant in the room. People die. God didn't intend for death to be pleasant. God didn't intend for death to be fun. God didn't intend for death to be ignored. He intended for death to be recognized. He intended for death to hurt. He intended for death to be sorrowful. He intended death to be grieving. He intended that. And we're living in a culture that is somehow trying to ignore the elephant in the room that somebody has died and there is pain and there is suffering and there is loss and there is death. Because the sting of death is what makes you realize you're standing on the precipice of eternity. And when you do away with that, you do away with people restructuring their lives, re-evaluating their lives. We ought not do that, beloved. We ought not do that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in verses 17 through 22, we have a description here of what's going on in the church at Corinth. Paul is writing some instruction to them because they've gotten off base on the Lord's Supper. And so he begins to write them in verse 17 and he says, In giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better but for the worse. You say, what does that mean? Verse 18 for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist, exist among you. And in part, I believe it, for there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is, not, is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? And this I will not praise you. He says, look, you guys are getting together and you're just having a big old time together. Since some of you are, are even drunk. You, they, they had gotten away from the seriousness of the Lord's Supper. They decided, well, what we need to do is we just need to have a good time and then we'll have the Lord's Supper on the end. Can you imagine some churches coming together and having a drunken stupor and some of the people that were there? But Paul says that's exactly what was happening in the church at Corinth. They were stripping the Lord's Supper of its solemnity and its seriousness. And Paul realized he wanted to reorient them that the Lord's Supper was a memorial service. And it was a time to reflect upon the meaning of life. And death is the cup out of which we drink the meaning of life. We have to understand what's going on here. The reality of death helps nourish our lives with purpose and meaning. This, this is what the writer of Ecclesiastes says. It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Because that is the end of every man. And the living takes it to heart. Solomon, the wisest man that ever walked upon the face of the earth, wiser than any man that ever lived, says it is wise to go to the house of death. Because there men take death, take living to meaning out of the death that has taken place. It changes the heart. It changes the heart. How does it do that? Death awakens within our hearts the reality of eternity. The church at Corinth had dulled their hearts to eternity.
And they had dulled their minds to eternity. They had dulled their minds to the reality of the death of Jesus Christ. They had done all of that. And Paul was, was, was on their case. They were living in the, and not living in the light of eternity, but they were living in the light of the flesh. They were living in the light of the here and now. They were living in the light of the moment. That's all they really cared about. And the result was they were eating and they were drinking and they were carousing. They were fighting. They were fussing. And there were divisions among them. And there was even a case of incest in the church at Corinth. Verse 23. Now I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after the supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant for my blood. That it, uh, do this as often as, you, uh, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Notice Paul pushes the reset button. He pushes the reset button. And he reminds them about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and what the Lord's Supper is really all about. Just as surely as we set up memorials today to remember the sacrifice of others and that the, the sacrifice they've made for us, there still is one more sacrifice that's head and shoulders above others, and that is the death of the Son of God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, For the word of the cross, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Paul said to those who are lost, the cross is foolishness. The cross is, is craziness. They have no desire to think about the cross of, of Jesus Christ or the death of Jesus Christ. And the, and the, and the world looks at us and says, you, you know, it mocks us and makes fun of us because we're remembering the death of Jesus Christ. Paul said you're being saved by the foolishness of the, uh, of the cross. It is the power of God. Paul said in Romans... For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He says, the death of Christ is empowering to us. Out of the death of Christ comes the power of God, as Paul says here, unto salvation. We are changed by the death of Jesus Christ. We are radically different because of the death of Jesus Christ. We take the death of Jesus Christ to heart. We think about the death of Jesus Christ. What? You think about the death of Jesus Christ? We meditate on the death of Jesus Christ. Yes, I know some people say, oh, you're not supposed to think about, the, about death. You don't think about someone dying. We do. As a child of God, we think about Jesus Christ dying and we think about it often, or at least we should think about it often. We should. You say, well, why do you think about the death of Jesus Christ? Number one, it's not normal. It's not the death of Jesus Christ was not a normal death. His death was prophesied hundreds of years in advance. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 7, Isaiah wrote, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his his mouth. The fulfillment of that is recorded for us in the book of Mark, chapter 15, and verse 5, where it says, But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. One of the most incredible Psalms is Psalm 22. You ought to read Psalm 22. Yeah, I, I, I should probably make it an own personal practice of mine to read Psalm tw uh, tw 22 before the Lord's Supper every time. Because Psalm 22 is a perfect description and prediction of the death of Jesus Christ. Let me just share with you the first two verses of the psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. There are literally dozens of prophecies in the Old Testament describing the death of Jesus Christ hundreds of years before he was ever crucified on the cross. Number two, not only was he not only was it predicted 
And it was his death in prophecy. But the thing that makes the death of Jesus Christ abnormal was that he was God. He was God. He was God in the flesh. And I know down through history, there have been other men who have claimed to be God. But none of them, none of them could give the evidence that Jesus Christ came through his power of healing and the miracles that he worked time and time and time again as recorded in the Gospels outside of the raising of the dead. I mean, when he healed the leper, that was a visible appearance of the power of God. A leper often had fingers missing. A leper often had toes missing. His skin was white. Jesus Christ would heal the leper. The toes would come back on the feet. The fingers would come back on the hands. The skin would be made all new and fresh again. Visible evidence of the power of God every time he healed a leper. Not to speak of the raising of the dead. Number three. His death wasn't normal because he died as your substitute. He died as your substitute. He alone makes you right before God. Now, I understand that we can, we can die for each other. I mean, husbands, uh, we would give ourselves for our wives. We would give ourselves for our children. We would do that because we love them, right? The Bible even, the Bible even confirms that. Paul said in Romans chapter 5, he said, for one will hardly die for a righteous man. He said hardly die. He, meant, he didn't mean they wouldn't. But he said it's hard, but they would do it. They would die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. He admits that. But then notice what he says. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us Paul starts out and says yeah you know you're going to die you're willing to die for someone you like you're willing to die for someone you love you might even be willing to die for someone that you owe but Christ came and he died for sinners for those who hated him for those who Hated, let me repeat that in case you just missed it. For those who hated him. Now we got to be honest with ourselves, beloved. Before we were saved, we hated God. You say, that's awful harsh. Uh, preacher, I'm not, I'm not sure that that I'm in full agreement with you there. Because to admit that we hated God, to admit that we hated God before we were saved is a pretty big indictment. Nobody wants to admit that they hate God, right? Nobody wants to admit they hate God. That just sounds bad. Makes you sound bad. Makes you sound awful. People don't want to admit that they hate God. But the reason we don't want to admit that we hate God is because we want to cover up how ugly we really are. That's why people don't want to admit that they hate God. Because admitting that you hate God is like the highest hatred. And we don't want to admit that we're that guilty. We don't want to admit that we're that wrong. We don't want to admit that we're that bad. But listen to me. Jesus only died for those who hated him. That's the deal. That's the deal, folks. We've got to come to terms with the truth and the reality of how big a sinner we really are. And we're a big enough sinner that we hated God before we were saved. And hating God is what qualified you to be saved. <laughs> you say, that's kind of a conundrum. It is. But it's true. 
It's true. You see, hell is going to be full of a lot of Pharisees. If you had told a Pharisee that he hated God, if you had told a Pharisee that he hated God, you'd have probably gotten to a physical alternation with him. He would never admit that he hated God. And there are going to be people in hell who say, I love God, I love God, and I love God. Just like the Pharisees. They never came to terms with the reality of the depth of their sinfulness before God. How about you? Have you come to understand the depth? Christ died for sinners. If you don't fit in that boat, you've excluded yourself. You say, well, what's the, uh, what constitutes hating God? What constitutes hating God? What constitutes hating God is not giving Him absolute control of your life. What constitutes hating God is you saying, God, I've got this. I'm in control. I can take care of it. I don't need you. I don't need you. What constitutes hating God is not giving Him absolute, total, 100% control of your life. Jesus said, Thy will be done, not my will. That's absolute love. That's what constitutes absolute love. Jesus shed his blood on the cross. He died for you even though you hated him at the time. His blood pays for every rebellious, self-serving, sinful thing you've ever done. His blood erases every sin. Every sin. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the blood of Jesus Christ erases every sin? So that when you stand before God, you stand in the holy righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if you believe that Jesus Christ's blood was enough to erase every sin, then along with that sin must go the shame and the regret that comes with that sin. You do not believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and paid for it in full unless you actually are free from the reproach and the shame and the regret that only comes with sin. You get rid of that sin through the blood of Jesus Christ and everything else goes with it. That's the deal. That's redemption. That's being free. That's having the price paid in full for your sins. We're about to memorialize that this morning through the participation of the Lord's Supper. So we're going to change gears a little bit here. And again, I'm going to go to the book of Matthew. <clears throat> Matthew 26 uh, records the events and the context surrounding the Lord's Supper. Okay. Um, brother, how's the best way to do this? I know you've probably thought this through. The, the bread is here in the back. It's right there. The bread is... We can dispose of the cups as we leave out. Three cups. Okay. Okay. 
you're going you're to have to you have to lead me along okay? <laughs> you know, lead me along it's, this is new okay this is different for me <laughs> so you help me out okay I'm, I'm serious you help me out <laughs> okay alright so here we go verse 20 now when evening came Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples and as they were eating he said truly I say to you that one of you will betray me being deeply grieved they each one began to say to him surely not I Lord and he answered he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. So the bread, brethren, is... Pastor? Yes. You let everybody go by and get a cup of bread and a cup of juice. Oh, I see it now. I, th- I couldn't figure out where it was. Everybody got a cup of each. I could go back to the seat. Because I'm looking from this angle here. And they looked empty. Amen, brother. All right, so um, if you would, let's just file by. Get your cup, hold it when you get back to your seat, okay? So let's just start right here, y'all. Clay, and y'all just start. We'll do this side here and come on around here. And... Uh, Sometimes when I do find myself thinking about the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And, you know, you, you, you I guess you, I, at least me, I, I can't help but envision the cross, the body on the cross. And I can't believe that he would do that for me. I know what I am. And it ain't pretty. (laughs) It ain't pretty. But it's real. I really sin. And he really pays the price for my sin. And he pays it in full. And I know that when I stand before him, and I really do see him in his glory, in all his majesty, 
I think all I'll be able to do is just worship him. (laughs) I don't know. I guess you look back at the cross, see the blood shed there. I don't know. But I know one thing. I have eternal life. I don't know what this year holds for me. And you don't know what this year holds for you. We're rocking and rolling like we've never seen it before. Christ is always going to be there with us. No matter what happens. No matter what comes. No matter how surprised we might be by death in our own families. I'll never forsake you and I'll never leave you. That's what he said. And I believe that. That's his promise. He died to secure that promise for me. I'm so thankful that he did. He said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. Pray with me. Father, we come before you, and as we've already mentioned, when we come in the presence of death, there are a few words that are adequate to express the, what we sense in our hearts. But this morning we come and we do understand the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross in a body that had blood and pain and misery and suffering and not did one second that he was on the cross that he deserved to be there not one father he was on the cross and we praise him on the cross Because he said, not my will, but thy will be done. And when he said that, his will included my name. My name. And I believe Jesus Christ knows every single one that he died for by name. And in a sense, when he said... On the cross, it is finished. He recalled the name of every child of God that was his. And he said, Son, your price is paid in full. Represented by the body on the cross. God. Humble us that we might walk with courage, with faith in what Jesus did. In his name we pray. Amen. As Jesus began to continue to preach and to teach, Scripture says when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you. In my Father's kingdom. Jesus fully anticipates coming back in glory and power, and for there'll be a resurrection of the dead. Many of those who have gone on before us are going to experience the resurrection of the dead if Jesus Christ comes back anytime soon. But we which are alive and remain, the Bible says, shall be transformed. Boom! A twinkling of an eye. And we won't go through that process of death, but we'll be changed by the power of God. And the Bible says that our ultimate place to abide 
going to be in heaven. No more sorrow. No more failure. No more frustration. No more anger or bitterness, fighting and fussing. All joy, all peace, all contentment forever and forever and forever without end. And you did not buy that. You didn't do a thing. You didn't do a thing to get any of it. Jesus bought it for you with his blood. Bought it for you with his blood. Oh, man. It's going to be so good, we can't even imagine. Can't even imagine how good it's going to be. Let's pray. Father, the Bible tells us that Jesus took the cup and announced that it was his blood. And that blood would be an atonement for our sins, a blessed covering. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you'd help us to remember that our sin is cast away as far as the east is from the west. Never to be remembered by you ever, ever again. And it's as if that wasn't enough. You're going to send his son, you're going to send your son back. And he's going to sweep us up into glory and majesty and power. As a matter of fact, he's going to set up a new kingdom upon this earth. He's going to rule and reign for a thousand years. We're going to be part of it. This earth will know peace and tranquility like it's never known it before. The lion will lay down with the sheep. And the adder's bite will lose its power. And all the nations of the world will come before the Lord and bow down and worship him. All because of the one who died on the cross and shed his blood. All glory and praise to your holy name as we remember the blood that was shed for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.